0: You're getting the most out of being at a game with American Express. The card member entrance, the lounge, and now tip-off. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams. And you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance. Stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off. And everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.
1: Welcome back to another edition of the Time Podcast. Sekou Smith here in Atlanta. My main man, John Schumann, is in New Jersey, as always. John Houtser behind the glass. And fellas, the holiday season is upon us. I mean, it's right here. The Christmas Day games are a mere couple weeks away. But there's action nonstop, John, going on around the NBA. Another busy night last night. Big wins for the Raptors. The New Orleans Pelicans and Indiana Pacers with Victor Oladipo back in the mix. We're going to get with Keith Pompey of the Philly Inquirer a little bit later to the show. We're going to do a deep dive on the, the, the Sixers and try and figure out what is going on with that crew: Joe Embiid, Jimmy Butler, Ben Simmons, the whole nine. But shoot, I was watching the Pelicans last night, and I know they've had their ups and downs, and you know Anthony Davis went back to the locker room once again temporarily with an injury. But I'm wondering of all these teams we see around the league shoe that have to do something to make sure they put themselves in the right position come playoff time is, is that the one team that, that must do something? I mean, I feel like the Pelicans are missing something that, that extra person that's going to allow Anthony Davis and, and Drew Holiday and, and Randall and all these guys to, to take it to that next level. And I, and I just keep seeing them night after night, how inconsistent they've been. Is that the team that, in your eyes, it has to make a change?
2: I guess. I mean, it depends on what their, you know, expectations are. I mean, yeah, I think if they want to be a top four team in the West, you know, there's probably a piece missing. And, and I think the obvious piece is like some size on the wing. You know, right now they've gone back to starting Solomon Hill. Yeah, Etwan Moore has been hurt. It's all, it all depends on how they view Drew Holiday also as far as it, if they don't want him playing point guard, well, then Tim Frazier isn't really the answer at point guard. And I don't know necessarily if Alfred Payton is either, despite his, I guess, relatively strong start to the season before he got hurt. But I also think that, I mean, just a, a, a competent uh, num- a three small forward that can play both ways and, and give them more consistency would help. I like their, you know, front line rotation. Miritich was hurt. Um... Also, I think last night, you know, the Davis-Miritich-Randall sort of rotation
1: works fairly well. They just feel like, to me, they should be an elite team as good as Anthony Davis is.
2: And the whole Davis thing hangs over their head. And I think, like, the rest of the league sees him as a prime candidate to leave, whether it be L.A. or whatever, or Boston trying to get in the trade mix. Um, at some point, I don't know if he sees him, like, I don't know where all that's coming from, like, and, and, and if it's based in fact, as far as how he feels about the franchise and his future, I think that's part of it. Uh, also the sort of angst and expectations and urgency with that team, uh, is, is obviously like when you have one of the five best players in the league, you've got to, um, you got to
1: capitalize. You come, yeah, you got to yeah.
2: compete for at least you know conference finals or something like that, right. or else you got to worry about you know what this guy might do next, and and when when is he a free agent? And so right. um, that's always the big story around that team.
1: Yeah, it just I mean it, it just jumped out at me watching the, the games last night, and there's some about Wednesday night. I don't know the way the schedule's set up shoot. It just feels like I'm always eyeballing so many different teams on Wednesday night, and. You almost start basing these ideas on what you see on that night in particular. I don't know if it's because that's night I'm in the studio and, and getting a chance to watch everything on, on the TV instead of watching League Pass on my iPad. But I, st- I start daydreaming about, you know, what could be with some of these teams if they could get the pieces right. And we talked about, the, the, you know, going in on the Sixers, we're going to go out full Philly. Uh, on the Hangtide Podcast today. Not only are we going to talk to Keith Pompey or the Philly Inquirer, as I mentioned, we're going to get a, a dose of Philly basketball history a little later with David Grisbowski who it's a new book on the life of Hall of Famer Tom Gola. Shoe, he's a five-time NBA All-Star who was way ahead of his time in the 50s and 60s in terms of his game. So we're going to get a chance to to d- dig down a little bit on that. And we'll do that after we talk a little bit more about last night, action because we can't overlook the fact that the Warriors got their doors blown off, shoe at home by the Raptors with no Kawhi, I'm I'm officially ready to get my passport out and lock down <laughs> this final strip. I'm serious. I'm I'm a believer. Like I'm feeling sure so early on.
2: I'm so, feeling a little bit more about confident about who's going to be number one in next week's power rankings than I have been <laughs> over the last few weeks.
1: Yeah, I mean they've been they've been so impressive without Kawhi that I don't know how you could could look at anybody else in the East and and put them ahead of the Raptors. They're just That depth and, you know, the way some of those role players are playing. Fred Van Vliet was was awesome last night. Off the bench, just playing well. I know you love Pascal Siakam. Um, You know, his rise to me has been just crazy to see a guy go from being what we thought might be, you know, kind of a nice little defensive role player into being a much more dynamic, you know, player than than that. they're just so
2: strong from, like, one to ten so that when yeah. when number one is out, you know, there's still nine guys who are capable of, of, of doing stuff and, and winning games. And, like, the Kyle Lowry turnaround is, is amazing. Like I was in Brooklyn on Friday when the Nets beat the Raptors in overtime, and that was, like, Lowry was – I, I talked to him a little bit after the game, and he's, his confidence was shot. Like, he yeah. didn't believe in his shot. Like, not only was he missing shots, but he was passing up lots of shots, including on some, you know, big possessions down the stretch of that game. And you could tell, like, he just didn't believe in his his own shot. So, like, he, you know, he's, over the last couple of years, he's been one of the best pull-up three-point shooters in the league. And then there's been times, not only in this, this last stretch, but even earlier in the season where he would step in, or you know, he'd get a screen and it'd be like, all right, that's that's a shot he steps into, you know, when he believes himself. And he'd just be passing up shots. And then to sort of turn it around on this, on this road trip, uh, on this back-to-back, I mean, yeah. I don't know if there's an, a more impressive back-to-back than you can pull off than winning at the Clippers and then winning at Golden State, two teams that had only lost two home games each prior. And then Lowry, you know, Tolling uh, 44 points in the two games, making six of his 15 threes. I mean, to have him back just means a ton for that team too.
1: Is it is it unfair of me to be a little perturbed at the basketball public for not giving Masai Ujiri the credit I think he deserves for the moves he made? I'm I'm only saying that because I know if we were to take what the Raptors did, removing the coach of the year and replacing him with a guy in Nick Nurse who's known as an offensive specialist, has come in and done exactly what you'd hoped he'd do. And then you take away a, uh, uh, a guy like DeMar DeRozan, the equivalent of DeMar DeRozan, a guy who's been a franchise player that you've grown and developed. You bring in Kawhi. You took all kinds of, you know, heat from people for that. And it worked out as well as it did. If this happens in another city, if this was Boston or Houston, all we would hear about is how great Danny Ainge <laughs> or Daryl Morey were you know I'm serious you know I like, think I think that Masai would be an Rodriguez. ongoing narrative I don't I, I don't think hear anybody talking about Masai oh he
2: gets plenty of credit I think I think people understand the job he's done I still look back at that trade and I don't know what the like why the Spurs couldn't have gotten a Siakam or an Ananobi or even a Van Fleet or even a Dorrell Wright you know like just
1: um, one of those young players yes yeah. just one of those somebody
2: to. You know, and the fact that they got Leonard and Green in the same deal is just, you know, and Green has been fantastic. Yeah, he's and, been
1: underrated in this whole thing. Yeah.
2: Um, so, I mean, it, it's it's going to look like a fantastic trade. And then, you know, we'll see. Uh, it already looks like a fantastic trade. And then we'll see, you know, obviously what happens with Leonard in uh, free agency. But if this team gets to the finals, then, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see, uh, you know, what he decides to do.
1: Yeah, a team that could could get in the way of the Raptors trying to get to the finals is is Boston. And I did get a chance to watch the Wizards and and the Celtics go at it overtime game. Kyrie was Kyrie, you know, with a uh, thirty seven points, twelve of them in in the overtime session. I, I know that the Celtics have a lot to to work out in terms of just the chemistry of their group and all that stuff. But we we afford the Warriors this. a pass even on the nights when they lose the way they did I don't know if we're giving the Celtics that same pass and I don't know if they've earned it to be honest with you but do you feel when you watch Kyrie perform the way he did and you know what the Celtics have in terms of talent do you still hold out a little bit that they're going to make a run during this regular season or that they will get it together in the playoffs and be the team that a lot of people expected them to be you know in the summer when we were forecasting them as the clear-cut challenger from the East to the Warriors? Yeah, I'm not going to bury them. There's still a lot of season to go.
2: They're obviously disappointing offensively for the first 20 games. Um, And I think, yeah, we're starting to see some signs of life on that end of the floor, and that's great. And I think the lineup changes that they've made have worked, and and it is, you know, uh, it's not all just about talent. And, you know, obviously they started the season with their five best talented players in their starting lineup, and that didn't work. And part of that is Gordon Hayward still trying to find himself and, and get his legs back. But also it, it's, it's a, maybe it's a little bit of a, a chemistry issue and Marcus Smart moving into a smart starting lineup has, has worked extremely well. And, you know, they've even absorbed the the absence of uh, Al Horford. I mean, they're five and zero without Horford, which is impressive. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think when it comes down to it, they're going to be right there. The Raptors are going to be right there. Bucks are going to be right there. And the Sixers are going to be. I mean, I we've said this before. I cannot wait for the Eastern Conference semifinals. Assuming those four teams uh, finish one through four in the East, right?
1: Of those four teams, you <laughs> that you met seriously. I mean, of those four, rank them in order of the faith you have in in their wow their their makeup as presently constituted, In just in the as presently constituted. Okay, in, so in the, in the Thursday Thursday morning. John Schumann, Eastern Conference, upper tier power rankings. Where do they rank one through
3: four?
2: I would say Toronto one, Austin two, just because Hayward, you know, we don't know, you know, if and when he's going to sort of be at full strength. And I still think um, guys like Jalen Brown is, or you know, like a like Brown is is trying to find himself. I think a Mar- Marcus Morris has played a little bit over his head early on. So I'll put them two. Mm-hmm. And then Philadelphia three – just because I think there's a lack of depth. And I still think they have some issues with the fact that, you know, Ben Simmons doesn't shoot. I think that causes some issues with them. And then Milwaukee four, although, it's, I mean, they're really good. But just the other two, the other, just maybe just because the other three teams are, have so much talent. Yeah.
1: I like that list. want to find out if our guess this week on the Hang Time Podcast feels any better about... The Sixers and you do. Keith Pompey from the Feeling Inquirer joining us here. Keith, how you doing, man? Appreciate you taking some time. We're head-scratching sometimes on the Sixers team, watching them, looking at all that talent and wondering what else has to get done for them to to get whole. I know the Markel Fultz thing is, is lingering out there, even if, you know, nobody wants to, to dwell on it. Is there another move to be made, even after the Jimmy Butler trade, for this for the Sixers team to get right?
4: Yeah, they. I mean a lot of people keep talking about they need a shooter which is true but i also think that they need a a power for it they need depth at that position i mean ideally you look at a guy like a wilson chandler you know and and you would say you know for this team the team could be better suited for him coming off the bench you know providing depth at this particular time um but uh you know, so I, I think they need that. They also need to hurry up and, and, and do something with the Markel folks situation. I mean, I, I think that, you know, even if they keep Markel, if, if, if they think that he they can move forward with him, they still have to bring in a power forward. And then once they get rid of Markel, I, I think that's when you can, you know, focus on replacing him and his role, you know, with someone. Because this team that they have right now, you know, I, I agree with John that they're probably the third best team in the East, but I don't see them getting to the conference finals. You know, I just don't with, with the makeup that they have, you know, right now.
1: Does Embiid and Jimmy Butler, does that dynamic duo, if you will, or if it's three, is it those two and Simmons? What is the ultimate ceiling for that for that relationship, I don't know if I, I believe that that they've kind of coalesced as well as they can. I think there's room for them to grow. Do they have a? They have an opportunity to become one of those dominant one-two punches in in the league.
4: You know, I, I I don't think that the problem is like you know a lot of people. I wrote the article and a lot of people thought you know Embiid was basically talking about um, you know Jimmy Butler. He wasn't. He was talking about the situation that they're in, and I, I think that you know because of you know, and and I'm not calling anyone out or nothing like that, but you got to realize Ben Simmons doesn't really shoot the ball from the outside. So that can affect his facing. And when you have a guy like MB, you know, who's a better shooter, you know, then, then Ben Simmons, and hey, let's just face it. He's a guy who will shoot the ball. Simmons won't. So he has to go out there and he has to be more in the perimeter right now. But in regards to let's just say MB and, and Butler, there's not a problem at all. I mean, the, the thing is, you know, you look at Butler, you know, Butler, what he wants to do is he's older than the two. And yep. he's, he's a guy who really wants to focus on the playoffs. So he's going through the motions, so to speak, through three quarters. And then all of a sudden the Sixers don't really had never had a closer. So then, then it becomes Jimmy Butler time. You know what I mean? Now, if he keeps, you know, doing what he does, the Sixers are going to win games and everyone's going to be happy. And then the fact, if you get a little jealous of them, let's just say someone does, you look like a fool complaining because you guys are winning games. So I I just think that when you have three guys like this and you guys know basketball, like, you know, when you have three superstars, one of them has to sacrifice their game. And right now, you know, right now, these are the two all-stars, so to speak. So you know, some people may argue, like, they're not the ones that have to sacrifice. Other guys got to fit in around those, too.
2: Keith, what has uh, Brett Brown said about that, That you know, Embiid, what he said about sort of popping out and catching the ball out and on the perimeter is something I've, I have I think I've focused on a lot even before Jimmy Butler came, arrived and, and maybe even before, like, even going back to uh, Embiid's rookie year, where I just feel like too many of his catches come – 25 feet from the basket rather than 10 mm-hmm. feet from the basket, and obviously Simmons's presence is, like you said, is is part of that. In that, you know, if he's running, if if Butler and Embiid are running a pick and roll, and Simmons is standing on the baseline, then Embiid can't really roll to the basket because Simmons and his defender are right there. And if if Embiid and Redick are are playing their two man game with their dribble handoffs, and, and and Simmons is is on the baseline or in the post or something, that that limits what Embiid can do. What has Brett Brown said about that as far as trying to get Embiid sort of catches closer to the basket and getting him, you know, allowing him to sort of use his size more than he does because he's catching the ball on the perimeter so much?
4: You know, it's funny because, you know, in the beginning of the season, you know, you've been around a team, and you remember how Brett used to always say we need Embiid to play bully ball. We need him down on the block. And and so Brett Brown knows that Embiid is – more effective when he's down low than he is when he's roaming the perimeter. He gets guys in foul trouble early, and he, he tends to have, you know, he gets to shoot like 10 to 15 three throws at least, and that's what the Sixers want. But it just seems like right now, you know, he's looking at the strength of his team. And when you look at Embiid, you can say sometimes when you're so versatile, you have to take one for the team. And I think that's what he's doing because, like as we talked about earlier, he's a better shooter than Ben Simmons. And, you know, so Ben Simmons can get stuff. He can score, you know, in the paint. So can Embiid. But they look at Embiid, and he can also score from the outside. So that's the reason why they're doing that. Now, I honestly believe once they go out there and they get someone else that all this is, you know, this is going to – everything is going to change. Because when you look at Dario Saric's role – you know, that was him. He was the guy. He was the spacer. He was the guy in the perimeter. While Ben Simmons was down on the block a little bit, so was Embiid. But I think once they go out there and they get someone else, you know, it's just going to change. I think that the way that this roster is constructed right now after the trades, you know, better suited to be out there than anyone else on the team.
1: Keith, you and probably everybody else in Philadelphia is tired of talking about it, but I, I can, it, it's gnawing at me. Day after day, when I see that team, and it's hard for me to fathom a team having a number one pick sitting in street clothes or or not with the team, whatever that they can't figure out how to to maximize his value. Is the Markel Fultz situation with the Sixers beyond repair? I mean, I know you mentioned earlier that you, if they decide to to you know make it work, how he would fit in. But have they gone beyond the you know the place where you can get him to play to the potential of where he was drafted? I mean, he's a, we're talking about the top overall pick and now he's on a team with other guys, at least three of them that eat before he does. I mean, he's got to get in line behind three other guys. I mean, he would have to make a a stunning jump in production and play to become anywhere close to the, to the player. He was, people maybe projected him to be as the number one pick.
4: Yeah, I agree with you. I I, I think that for both sides, it's time to get a divorce. You know, I mean, I, I think it is. It's like, you know, like you're in a relationship and you like saying, man, I love her, but she's crazy, man. I love her, but she's crazy. You know what I mean? And, and I think, you know, they love each other, but it's time to go. I mean, because, you know, Markel, the Sixers gave up so much for Markel that it's hard for him to live up, especially yeah. right now, to live up to the hype that, you know, he has. Secondly, all the stuff that he's been through, I mean, we're talking about a guy who hasn't even played half of a season yet, you know what I mean, for all the things, and he's, you know, he, he's, not, he's not able to shoot the ball. Um, he's the fourth option. He's the backup point. He's not even the fourth option. He's the backup point guard. And not only that, it's kind of like it's become a circus. You know, I love Markel. is a great kid. If you sit down and you talk to Markel, you're like, man, this guy is great. But it just seems like he's getting the bad advice. You know, it's like, you know, it's just it's just too much that comes with it. And I honestly believe if Markel folks could go somewhere, and I'm going to compare him to Evan Turner, and I and I'm not saying Evan Turner had problems, but mm-hmm. Evan Turner was like the second overall pick with the Sixers. The people in Philly – couldn't stand them because they felt like he, he couldn't live up to the hype. He right. goes elsewhere. He settles into a role. No one says this guy was the second overall pick. They look at him as if, hey, Elton is contributing to our team. He's a, good, he's a good teammate. And I think Markel Folks needs to go somewhere else where he can do that because as long as he stays in Philadelphia, he's going to be recognized as a bust. And I yeah. think that is – you know, I think a lot of it's mental – but at the same time, he needs to go.
2: The question is, like, what a team – what team is going to take that risk? Because it's, it's one thing, like, if, if you see Evan Turner not working out with the Sixers and you, you know what kind of player he is and you know how to develop him, his, his, his game, or mm-hmm. even a Jaleel Okafor, right? Like, you, Brooklyn took that chance just to see, hey, you know, we know what skills he has. We know what he can do. We know what, where, what he can't do. But with this fault situation, you don't necessarily know how to fix. You know what the issue is, right? Like you don't know what you, you know. It's not just a hey a, a player development issue. Or it's not just a hey let's just get in the gym and 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 work on on this and that. It's uh, as if I'm another team and I'm looking at that situation from the outside, uh, and and I have the ability to trade for them. I don't know what I'm get. Like I don't know if I can fix what's wrong, right? Like how do you know what steps to take?
4: Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and and that's the thing because, again, everyone sources, everyone is saying there's a mental thing that he's going through. And then you, you hear that and some team's like, well, you know what? We can work with that. You know what I mean? We can get him in there. We can try to, you know, get him some help, you know, talk to, you know, some therapy, whatever. And then when they keep coming out with like, oh, no, it's this illness, it's that illness. And then you're saying to yourself like now, okay, Now, there's no – someone's lying somewhere. You know what I mean? So that's that's a major problem. Like, like I do think that there is a market. I think there's a dwindling market. But let's just say if you're a team that has, you know, young talent, you're a team that's struggling, and you're also a team that's not a free agent destination, right, where that you may take a chance on him. But you would have to – I mean, he would have to hurry up and play. But you would take a chance on him to see what he would do and then you have his, you have him since the Sixers picked up his option, you would have him for, a, 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 for the rest of this year, and then you can decide moving forward what you want to do with him. But the longer, like, you know, he stays in L.A. and, you know, and he doesn't play, you know, I, I think that lessens the chances, you know, for him to, to latch lat on with a team. But, um, you know, I, I think that because he was the first overall pick, you know, you can go there and like, and if you're, like I said, a team that's not a real good free agent destination, you can say to the fan base, look, we got a guy who was taken first overall. You know what I mean? We think he can be a good player. And if it doesn't work out, you know, we're going to get rid of him. But as far as like being on a team that's going to be a contender or something like that, I, I don't think it's going to happen. As far as the Sixers basically, you know, trying to get, you know, equal what they deem equal value that's not
1: going to happen either. Yeah. It's just just one of those weird things, like I said, Keith, that just – it bothers me because I feel like whoever's fault it is, as you said, he, he can't succeed in Philly without a, a star turn that nobody sees coming, you know, in terms of this yep. production in place. Always going to be overshadowing whatever he does there is that, man, we, we gave up all that for this guy in the number one pick and this is all we get. And, and that's a tough thing to overcome. I don't care how confident you are, how talented you might be. That outplaying the shadow of, of that bus tag has been difficult for lots of guys throughout the history of this league, um, wherever they go. Do we give Brett Brown the ovation he deserves for managing through all of these things that have gone on? We didn't even talk about, you know, the Colangelo affair and how that went down, um, Elton Brand now being – you know, the chief basketball decision-maker for the organization. Um, Brett Brown seems to me like he's, he's been extra extra good um, just managing all of the drama that this franchise has dealt with.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I can see where you're coming from. That's a great a great way to say it. He has managed a lot because if you think about it, I mean, even down to Elton Brand right now, like, you know, there was Sam Hinkie. Brett Brown was the voice he was the mouthpiece you know what I mean he was the one that everyone said the same thing with Brian Colangelo, and you can still say you know to a certain extent with with uh with um e b and that's just because you know Brett's out there, he's in the you know in the out in the front now the thing is he can you know we we can applaud him for everything that he went through that that happened, but right now, I think it's about to get real because <laughs> beforehand. There was no expectations, really. Like, even down to last year, when they, made, when they won 52 games, that came out of nowhere. And then when they lost to Boston 4-1, to one, everyone was saying, what a great season, what a great season. Now you we're talking about you had Joel Embiid popping off, right? And then mm-hmm. now you're, you're trying to, like, incorporate Jimmy. Now, again, I said I don't think Jimmy and Joel are the problem at all but you have three egos that you have to manage and you also have expectations and see, you know with Brett Brown and he'll come out and he'll say, you know what? I have a young team. I have a young team. Well, Amir Johnson, although he doesn't play that much, he's over 30. JJ Reddick's over 30. Jimmy Butler's 29, you know, and all these guys been in the league for a while, you know, we're talking about Wilson Chandler. So, you can't really get a pass like you did before, especially when your roster has two all-stars on it and you have the reign and rookie of the year. So as much as Brett Brown deserves all the credit he received, mm-hmm. I think that is up to a different level now. And he's going to be judged differently, especially if this team struggles.
1: Hmm, it's interesting this is, a, this is a fascinating team keith and and we appreciate your coverage obviously giving us that all the insight behind the sixers team because it's been it's been one thing after another man and uh i hope they do end up in in that top four in the east as you mentioned the, the eastern conference playoffs could be to me as good as they've been as competitive as they've been in quite some time we don't have the 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 specter of LeBron James hanging over the entire conference, like we've had for the past decade. You know, we we got somebody else that's gonna rise to that that top spot. Speaking of top spots, every time on the Hang Time Podcast, John Schumann kicks us with some trivia. He hits us with a Schumann stat every week, and normally. I have to get a lifeline to answer this. So I'm, I'm leaning on you, Keith, right now to help me out to answer oh, John trivia <laughs> question. Listen, it's fair to cheat. I've tried it, and even that doesn't help me sometimes, but we're going to get this right today because I know I got expert help with the Schumann stat. <laughs> All right, you
2: guys. I, I forgot to, to calculate my I – was, I was looking at a Joel Embiid stat. I forgot to recalculate it, but he's on pace for something less than, I I think, less than 100 three-pointers this season. So my question is, I was curious, is I looked up seven footers who have made at least 100 threes in a season, and there are 12 of them, but there are one, two, three, four, five, six that have made six seven-footers who have made at least 100 threes in
1: multiple seasons. Wait a minute. Time out before we go further. Is is Kevin Durant counted in this seven-footers list? Uh, no, he's not. Oh, come on. All right. Official, official height. All right, official so. seven-footers. Okay.
2: One of them should be fairly easy. He's done it in nine seasons. He's an active player. Dirk Nowitzki. Uh, Dirk Nowitzki, correct. Let's see. The other one, two, three, four, five, six. The other six, one of them is no longer in the league. Uh, the other five are mm-hmm. – um, <laughs> Seven one footer. guy has done it five seasons. Five seasons. He's won mm-hmm. a championship in the last uh, f- five years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, Seven footer. He's won a champ won a championship. One champ. He won a single championship in the last five years. Seven footer has hit at, h- at least 100 threes in five different seasons. Three times with Phoenix. One time with Orlando. One team. One time with the team he won a championship with
1: a seven footer jack in threes like
4: that Ugh. Uh, um, so you say he was in Phoenix one year
2: he did it he did it, three times, he did it three times in Phoenix and then he did it one season in Orlando and then one season uh, with the team he won a championship with mm.
1: seven footer
2: come on all right the team he won a championship was Cleveland. Seven-footer for the Cavs, who has hit a hundred threes in five different uh, seasons. he's, what's and he's his back name? with um,
4: the
1: Cavs.
2: Oh, so he's back with the Cavs? Left for a little bit, oh, and then he uh,
1: came back. Oh, I'm, I'm – uh, ch- uh, ch- what's his
4: name? I'm having brain. No, it's the it's, – uh, Got traded last year and yeah, then came back in free agency oh, this Oh, yeah, year. yeah. And and he's from Phoenix, right? He's from Phoenix. Yeah, what's his name? Um, <laughs> so disrespectful. I <laughs> can't remember his name right now. Yeah, you yeah, like crazy. Remember.
1: Yeah, Channing, Channing Fry, Frye. All right, Channing Frye. But I hope we're not listening. Yeah, we Channing like, Frye.
4: Fry, Fry yeah, right. that's
1: disrespectful.
4: Yeah, right. yeah, <laughs> yeah my Channing, bad. Bro, <laughs> all right,
2: this. All right, the next guy. Uh, <laughs> he did it in uh, two seasons. All right, two. There's two, three starting centers that have done it in in two multiple two seasons each. Mm-hmm. Current players. Current players. One of them is shooting threes more than ever this year. Robin Lopez. No, not Robin Lopez. I mean, the other Lopez.
4: Brooke Lopez. Uh, Brooke, Brooke Lopez. Lopez. yeah. This
2: other guy, uh, former defensive player of the year, starting center in the Western Conference, uh, been shooting threes the more, a lot more the last few years.
1: Former defensive player of the year. Oh, wow. His brother
4: is also
2: oh. a, in the league. So it's another
4: – it... Would you say he was uh... – oh, so... Marcus, oh, yeah,
2: right? told, yeah. Marcus Mark,
4: yeah, Marcus, and yeah. then
2: the other guy is uh, one of the best sort of young centers in the league. Uh, Seven footer, one of the best sort of perimeter shooters among bigs in the league. Uh, young player, Western Conference, uh, mm-hmm. made the playoffs last year. Not necessarily going to make the playoffs this year. Carl Anthony uh, Towns, Anthony Towns, correct. Mm-hmm. Um. Next one is a backup center in the Eastern Conference. Uh, was a top 10 pick, has been a little bit of disappointment. Mm-hmm. Went to the national championship game in college. Did he win the championship? I'm not sure. Um, backup center in the East, in the Southeast Division.
4: Yeah. Um, I think, uh, plays for the Hornets, right? Yep. Um, Guys, Is aim. Kaminsky considered a Kaminsky, 7 Kaminsky, yes, yeah, yes. yeah, that's some Kaminsky, yeah. He is a seven-footer official.
2: Yeah. All right. Okay. And so the last one is the one that's no longer in the league. He might be uh-huh. playing in Europe, uh, if, uh, but I'm not sure because he came from Europe. Uh-huh. Former number one pick, seven-footer, made at least 100 threes in three different seasons while he was in the league. Andre Bagnani. And
1: that yeah, yes, Andre Ibanez. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. So the other guys who've done it in one season are Dragon Bender, Spencer Hawes, Lowry, Markinen. Wow. Markinen might have the best chance of eventually catching Nowitzki with the nine seasons.
1: Somebody he let Dragon Bender's jack a hundred threes. <laughs> he made a hundred threes. I mean, ma- um, are you serious? Yeah, last season. Man, they he, they uh, let, was, let you do anything. One
2: hundred and eighteen for three twenty-two. Not bad. Thirty-seven percent. And then Porzingis did it in in
1: uh, one season. Uh, previously. So. Porzingis could probably catch. Yeah, Porzingis
2: catch. and marketing obviously would be the uh, candidates to to get the uh, get into Nowitzki territory.
1: Well, I, I hope Joel Embiid gets on the list at some point. You talk about people being upset. <laughs> he, get, he, he should get there. Definitely. Yeah, he will. Definitely.
4: But The, the only um, thing about Joe, though, like the, the Sixers fans, they hate it when Joel, like, <laughs> makes his first two threes early on <laughs> and then all of a sudden it becomes a three-point contest. You know what I mean? But yeah, like he's better off when he starts off on the block and then expands his game. But uh yeah, I mean he'll get there. He'll get there. No doubt.
1: We appreciate it. Listen, Keith, great stuff as always, man. We appreciate you taking the time to uh dig in with us on the Sixers, man. Great, great content that people need to find on the uh you know, Philly dot com and keep doing what you do, bro. We appreciate it.
4: Thanks, Keith. Hey, thanks for having
1: me on, fellas, and see y'all no doubt. soon. Yes, sir. Keith Pompey joining us there, shoot. Um, seriously, your, your questions? I, that one was I've had, a little
2: tougher than I thought it was going to be. I've had
1: easier times in high-level college courses than I've had trying to guess the damn Schumann stat. Okay. It would help if you guys
2: knew Channing Frye's
1: name. But. <laughs> <laughs> no disrespect to Channing Frye. Seriously, sometimes, in, in all let's, let's put it all on the table. We take this podcast early in the morning for guys who stay up late watching NBA games. So we do struggle a little bit if you don't get your morning coffee before you get to the Schumann stat. As we mentioned, we were going to go hard on Philly on this episode of the Hangtime Podcast. And uh, you know me. uh, You know I'm a book junkie. I love basketball history. So it's perfect time to uh, talk with David Grisbowski, the author of Mr. All Around, The Life of Tom Gola. David, thanks for, for taking some time, first and foremost. Tom Gola's a guy that if you're not one of these, you know, historians and a basketball junkie that loves to dig into to the rich history of this league you could overlook a guy who in a lot of people's eyes was a player ahead of his time in Tom Gola
3: yeah for sure I just think uh it's so interesting that you know there hasn't been a book on Gola's life kind of backstory of how you know came to be I actually went to LaSalle University in Philadelphia where obviously Gola went the arena is named after him and he is you know the the most popular player as well, as like Lionel Simmons. I'm sure you guys are familiar with Lionel and his yeah. and his tenure. But yeah, I just uh, you know I just think it's, it's it's so important for you know people like like Tom Gola and other players uh, in that era that their stories need to be told. And uh, you know I kind of put my head down and I'm a basketball junkie myself, and I just kind of wanted to tell his story because you know he's the all-time leading rebounder in uh, NCAA history as 2,201, and no one will forever break that record. I think the closest player currently in the NBA or, or most modern player was Kenneth Fareed And he was maybe had like 16, mm-hmm. 1700. So it goes to show you that goal legacy, you know, is forever being the, in the you know, the leaderboard there. But uh, yeah, I just think goals, uh, legacy and story is really important and special, especially Philadelphia based. Um, he got into politics, coaching, he did everything. And I'm just happy, you know, to be a person to tell his story and to, uh, you know, continue his legacy.
1: Yeah. Well, he look, he won a championship with the Philly Warriors in 1956, then he teams up with Wilt Chamberlain. Do you think the fact that Wilt came along had anything to do with him maybe, you know, not being marginalized so much, but his, you know, his greatness kind of being overshadowed, you know, as, as, a, an, as a pro in Philly, when you have a guy like Wilt Chamberlain coming there, even, even if it's for a limited amount of time, you get this all-time great, you know, coming in in his shadow kind of overtaking everything.
3: Yeah, um, I've been telling people that in a way, and you look at it, especially statistically, like Gola's, Gola's career in basketball kind of like went, it kind of peaked in high, or sorry, in college, and he, I mean, he was a mm-hmm. popular NBA player. Don't get me wrong, but he wasn't the same player he was in the NCAA when he was, you know, scoring twenty and twenty a game and, and so forth. But yeah, um, it's kind of cool. Will and uh, Gola had a great relationship. They were teammates for a few years and. I don't know, not, a lot of people don't know this because it's not really mentioned, but Gola was on the team when Wilt scored his 100 points uh, in, in Hershey, Hershey, Pennsylvania. Gola actually didn't play that game because he was hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I always think about this, that I can't imagine what Gola's legacy would have been like even more. Because, you know, like you said, he, he only passed away uh, back in 2014. So I can't imagine if he played in that game, he would probably have been, one of the very few people that were left on this earth that could maybe, you know, mention that game and be a part of that historic game that people, I mean, still talk about, you know, every year and and, and every, you know, when the anniversary comes up. So, but yeah, I think yeah. Um, him and Wilt had a great relationship. I mean, Gola even spoke at Wilt's funeral. Uh, that shows you how much, you know, respect they had for one another. And it's kind of cool when like someone like, you know, depending who you talk to, the goat and, and uh, uh, says that Gola was one of his favorite players ever. It kind of shows you, the street cred that Gola has as a basketball player and kind of as a person too.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm one of these people who likes to look at the old film from, from back in those days, you look at statistics and you, you study a, a guy's game. Here's a guy who, uh, you know, had three straight games during the 59, 60 season where he tallied triple doubles. Um, and with the emphasis we put on them now, you know, when you got a guy like Russell Westbrook averaging him for a season, do you think his game would have translated to a time like now where you're playing a much, you know, more, more free-formed offense in the NBA than you did years before?
3: Yeah, I think so. Um, people have been asking me a lot of who, you know, who whose game would I monitor him after? I would probably say, rear right of the bat, uh, Draymond Green. Uh, someone that, you know, depending on the night, you can, you know, he can, he can bring off the ball when needed. I know he doesn't do that, but you know, for for goal to be 6'6 back in 1950s, like, that was kind of unheard of. And mm-hmm. you know, normally back then, like, if someone's that tall, you automatically, even if you're playing pickup on the playground, you know, tallest guy goes underneath to get the rebound. But it was the opposite of that. I mean, goal did everything. He did that, brought the ball up, he shot. uh, was a good shooter. And, you know, like I said, he was kind of like the triple-double player before it became popular. You know, like I said, you know, I, obviously it was goal in the 50s and later came Bill Russell, and then you could kind of follow – um, the symmetry of the players taking over errors, you know, up to Kobe, LeBron, Wilt, and Shaq and all those players now. So, yeah, I would definitely say that. I would definitely think his game would uh, would kind of cross over to today's game. Um, then I, I definitely see him not, not maybe starting, but definitely a player coming off the bench that, like I said, you can do everything for you and kind of be a scrappy type of player.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you? I, I know guys have profiles in their cities. You know, and where you play college is so unbelievably important for guys. Not, not for that generation of guys, obviously, who skipped the college process and went straight to the league. But when you look back, and you know, if a guy's name is on a on a gym, or if you go into an arena that's named after a guy, or it, it, you know, it's on the floor at these, you know, gyms all these years later. Does that speak more about the the legacy that a guy has? You know, in Philly, there are probably people who are telling Tom Gola stories to this day from hearing about him from their parents or somebody in their family who watched him during his heyday. Does he have a bigger profile maybe in a basketball, in a sports mad city like Philly than he does even beyond there?
3: Yeah, I, I think so. And that's kind of why I wanted to write the book because, you know, I didn't want to just, be a piece where it's like, okay, you know, he scored twenty points and twenty rebounds in this game and won this. I really wanted to show like what goal was like off the court. You know, like I, I think, obviously yes, goal was a great player. He was a statesman and like he was a very well polished guy. But at the same time, like he gave back to his community. He, you know, he was kind of he was kind of like you know Sonny Hill esque here in Philly, like giving back to the community with you know basketball programs and and just being that that voice voice to the voiceless type of thing uh like I say one in politics and stuff but yeah I think part of the reason why I wanted to write the book is because I wanted people to know like I think people get confused not just in Philly but in, in general it's like okay the arena's named after him he has a statue but why you know like I wanted I wanted to I wanted to paint the picture of like why he has the statue at LaSalle why the arena's named after him and why he's so special why did he put uh, himself on the map, but he also put, you know, LaSalle and, and just his just up your basketball on the map as a whole. Yeah. This
1: is, like I said, fascinating stuff is always when you get a chance to to dive deep on the history of this game. So many guys, and I think it's a very important part, uh, you know, of what you've done here and, and Mr. All around the life of Tom Gola is we, we watch these guys on the big stage, David, and we think we know them. We think we know about them. We think, you know, that we know their story but they live a long life a lot of times after basketball outside of that spotlight. You know, so some of what you do beyond the game to me is always enlightening about who these guys were as people and players um, and what they go on to become. So a good read, perfect time at the holidays for people to get their hands on the book. Tell, tell folks where they can, can find Mr. All around the life
3: of Tom Gold. Yeah, sure. You go on Amazon. It's in Barnes and Nobles here in the uh, Philadelphia area. Uh, you can log on to, uh, I have a website, Tom And I've been, uh, tweeting uh, also a lot of behind the scenes stuff. That's not in the book. Uh, my Twitter's David Grizz, David G R Z Y T V TV. And, uh, it's been cool. It's been a, a, a grind with the book marketing and everything, but I've been enjoying it. And, uh, like I said, it's a labor of love. Hope people can check it out. And like I said, if you're a basketball junkie, not just college or NBA, or just love the game itself. I definitely would hope people could check it out. And, uh, you know, like you said, uh, continue going legacy, and I uh, hope people can check it out.
1: I appreciate it, David. Thanks a lot. Happy holidays, and, and hopefully people check it out, because I think the history of this game, as fascinating as the current game is, the history of the game is so much richer than people realize, and this gives them another opportunity to check it out. So we appreciate you, man, and thanks for joining us on the Hangtime Podcast. All right, thanks, man. Trust the process. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> we'll be back on Monday. With another episode of the Hang Time Podcast, we went crazy hard on Philly today. Um, Tony Luke ought to be sending me cheesesteaks right now because we we rep Philly hard. We'll they'll have all the breakdown on John Schumann's uh, power rankings on Monday. But don't forget, in the meantime, check out the Kia MVP ladder on NBA.com on Friday. I'm ready for your hate email. Yes, you called me a fanboy last week when LeBron James was number one. Who knows what you're going to call me this time around? Be sure to subscribe to Hang Time on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts for new episodes all season long. Do not forget to leave a review. And we'll see you next time right here on the Hang Time Podcast.
0: Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on! 6 p.m. Book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. See how to elevate your experiences at AmericanExpress.com/slash-with-amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, "Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count."
3: Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until four, so...
0: Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply.